I want to start off really asking, what's the big deal of having a worship service or having a church? I mean, this is prime napping time, right? Sunday afternoon. And honestly, I mean, I've, I've had a, a good week, but it's been pretty exhausting. I had a good weekend, but it was pretty exhausting. I mean, is it worth all the things that we do and, and all the effort that we put in to come to church? What do you expect when you come? I don't, I don't mean, you know, dive deep into your innermost motivation as far as why you come. That, that could lead us. There's, there's lots of reasons that we come, and that's okay, because we're all struggling with sin and various pursuits. But there's a lot that needs to be put into it. So do we expect much? Do we expect that we're going to meet the God of the universe and be in a way that can feel booming when the sound system makes it that? Meet him in a way that is unique compared to all the rest of the week? Well, we have a pretty awesome psalm that we get to dive into, Psalm 122. And it is precisely about the Israelites finally making it on pilgrimage to the temple. And we're going to see that that gave them a lot of reason to rejoice but also to praise God that he reigns. And so before we jump in, let's pray that we would meet him in his word. Father, you are holy. You are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. You go before us. You support us when we don't even know it. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided your word, that we are not left in darkness. We are not left to our own subjectivities and even feelings, but you have shown us who you are and all that you have done in Christ. And so we ask that your word would come alive and that you would meet us exactly where you know us to be and exactly where you know us to need to be met. All to the praise of your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Psalm 122, and it's a part of this section you may may or may not be aware of that is called the Psalm of Psalms of Ascents. And they're called the Song of Ascents because if you were to go to Jerusalem or the temple, you go up. Um, kind of it would be cool maybe if there are a few more steps to enter church, just symbolically, because we're we're told that we're going to go up to Jerusalem, just like we're going up to the church, and you may already be thinking about the painting, and that's a good instinct. But this group of psalms, 120 to 134, is the song of ascents. And 120 is more out of desperation because they're far away. If you think of a pilgrim, an Israelite who's far off from Jerusalem, there's the sense of they're crying out for God's salvation. And they really want to and need to make it to Jerusalem because that's the place where their sins are going to be forgiven. That's the place where they can know God will be present. 121 is more of a, they know where they're going, but they're on journey. So that's that's the pilgrim in the midst of the pilgrimage. They see where they're going, but they still need to rely on God, and they're depending on God. And and we looked at that a couple weeks ago to think about, you know, 
that any glimpse of our own life? Do we know the purpose behind it? But Psalm 122 is finally, hallelujah, we made it. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord. That was the reaction. And so is that your reaction? Does that mirror your reaction at all? And, and I, I realize the, the danger of manipulation for a preacher to ask that, right? How excited were you on your way? Or if someone invites you, how excited do you get? But this clearly was their reaction. They were glad when someone said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And they're celebrating all of these things when they finally make it because they know that something is different. Something is going to change. Something matters. And they're at their destination. Now, we are at our destination now, but not yet. But the temple is meant to be a, a center point or a nexus or a medium of getting a taste of heaven now, even as we wait for it fully in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be perfect. But this, we're going to see their celebration of being in Jerusalem and being in the temple is a glimpse into what is supposed to be happening in the church. And so, they rejoice because they get to go praise God. And rejoice is actually not just a New Testament thing. You may think it is. But the Israelites were actually commanded to rejoice also. In Deuteronomy, it reads, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite, so in your towns. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord has shown you. So it seems like this psalm is really fulfilling that command. What I want us to ask is, how can God command us to rejoice? Does that seem odd to you? Both Old and New Testaments, there are commands from God that say rejoice. New Testament is more famous for things like rejoice in your suffering. How can you do that? What kind of command is that? Surely it can't just be a feeling that he's commanded us to have. He's not saying, feel really, you know, gum up your emotions. Somehow, whatever that would mean. Well, that's what we want to look at. How can he command us to rejoice? It's not just an arbitrary feeling he's asking us to, he's asking us to have. And so he can command us to rejoice uh, primarily because when they make it to the temple, they're entering God's presence. They're entering God's presence. They get to worship and praise him. Maybe that seems obvious to you. It should seem obvious to you, but it shouldn't be something that we take for granted. That we get to come into God's presence. That the whole purpose of all of this is to meet God. There's other parts of the psalm, and we'll talk about them, where there's unity and there's prosperity and there's amazing community that is shaped out of those things, but it's as if those things aren't the focus, the pursuit, it's kind of like if, you do, if you're seeking happiness, you're not going to get it. But if you're seeking something for the good in and of itself, happiness will come along with it. 
if we seek God for who he is, if we see that that's what matters, then all of these other things will end up coming. Rather than trying to get those things, using God as our means to them. Which is a very easy temptation. We, we, we want to worship God because we think it will make us more prosperous or healthy or happy. God becomes a tool in our minds. Psalm 73 is a good example to see why this should matter. That when we come into God's presence, we're not just getting new knowledge, because we're not even told necessarily in Psalm 73 that's what happened. But Psalm 73 is an example where the psalmist is, is confessing his confusion and his doubts and his uh, complaints even to God, saying, God, you're supposed to be good to Israel, but I am tempted by all the prosperity and the wealth of non-Israel. Where are you? Where are you, God? Why do you allow this to happen? But then when he says, when I thought I ought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He doesn't understand the way of the world. He doesn't understand how can God be just until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. So then he goes in to talk about God's justice and judgment. And then he gets to be reminded of who God is. And I would encourage you to to read Psalm 73 later today. The end parts of it goes, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Do you guys see how entering God's presence and even worshiping God doesn't necessarily give us knowledge that we didn't already have? but it does show us who God is and who we are in a whole new way. Maybe another way to think of it is um, you can know certain doctrines or theology, and, and, and I love theology. This is a church that loves theology, but there's this inherent danger where you can have some sort of knowledge about God without really knowing God. You can know a lot about the Bible, but there's this inherent danger. Paul talks about knowledge puffs up. So it wasn't until he came into the presence of God where he saw, oh, this is who God is. And if you think you know God, but that doesn't lead you to worship and praise and be in awe, then you're not quite knowing God. Sometimes we even say, when people ask us about this painting, people say, well, come worship. And then maybe you'll find out. I mean, there's a little card in the bag, and you can you know, learn about it, who did it, and all that stuff. But you don't really know it, I don't think. You don't really experience it. Um, don't get distracted by the painting. I, I didn't plan on keep mentioning it, but it is amazing. Um, but so this, this psalm shows us that the glory of God, the, the, the worship of God, ought to be 
the purpose and destination that we can celebrate, that we can look forward to when we come to the temple. Because that is also where we're going. Revelation 21 shows us that's where we're going to end up. It's going to be a, the whole world is going to be a temple. The whole world is going to be filled with God's glory. Not just by faith. We sing that now, and we, we desire that, and it's going to be by sight. That's where we're headed. It's like we're getting a little glimpse. We're getting a little glimpse that this is going to, all the, all the good things that's happening right here, hopefully, is going to be global. Okay, so if, God, if, if we're coming into God's presence, this is what matters. This is the, the, the focus, if you will. We then see a couple, too many things that come out of God's presence for the psalmist. So they have made it to the temple. They've made it into God's saving presence. And he talks about two main things. One is strong peace and then justice. First, strong peace. And I wanted to just, I wanted not just to say peace. Because I think a lot of times we sentimentalize that word and that idea. Oh, I'm just, I just want to be peaceful. I just want to have rest. And sure, that, that's a part of it. But it's a much bigger word. It's a much more important word. And you see that here. Because right around when he's talking about peace, he's talking about security. He's talking about the fact that Jerusalem has walls. It's like a fortress on the top of a hill that can't be overtaken. In the same way that the church is described as something that the gates of hell will not overtake. And so peace and strength ought to go together in our minds. Peace isn't just a sentimental feeling, although it will include that at times. It's something that is strong. May may they be secure who love you, he says in verse 6. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Towers are the military language, the fortresses. Um, One one sort of often used when, when Christians talk about peace, often used passage is Philippians 4. And it goes like this. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you have a sense that the peace of God is meant to guard, is meant to protect you, is meant to be active and strong? meant to secure your heart and mind in Christ? What does that mean? It seems to mean that there are competing factors, competing idols for our heart and mind. There are going to be competing powers that want to say certain things about who we are and who God is. And the peace of God that was finally accomplished in Christ is meant to guard us against that. What is that for you? What is... What is the thing that the world, the flesh, or the devil is trying to tell you and inhibit your sense of peace? It's trying to break through the fortress of peace, if you will. Because those things are liars. If you are in Christ, those things are liars. Can you say these things with confidence that there is peace in your heart? Not just that you feel a calmness, but there's a sense of Rest from your enemies. 
in, in the Old Testament, this was never fully accomplished, but there's, there's really one verse where, um, I think it's 2 second, second Samuel 5, 5 or 7, where Israel's finally at rest from their enemies. And David's kingdom has this glimpse of peace. And it's described in that way because he has defeated all the enemies he's supposed to, and they can finally stop fighting. The next chapter, it breaks up, and, and yada, yada, yada. Um, a lot of kings are very sinful, and we need Jesus, a real final son of David. But it's instructful that, that that's how peace is described, rest from our enemies. That's exactly how it's described in Romans 5. But the enemies there are us, us being portrayed as an enemy of God, and what Christ has done is reconciled us so that we may have peace and rest. But it would be a a bad misunderstanding of this text if we're to only think of this as, I'm going to have peace with God, me, me individually. This is a very, very communal passage. And so the peace of God is not just I get to go to the temple, but we get to go to the temple, and the city is secure. So the church is supposed to be secure. Peace should be a characteristic of the church. Is that your picture of the church? Is that something that you pursue? Our our membership vows put it a little archaically, but they say we're, we're committing to study the purity and peace of the church something that we ought to be striving after. There's a couple of really helpful passages for us to understand what this means for the new covenant. Colossians 3 describes us in this way, or commands us in this way. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You see how those things are sources of conflict because they are against the very peace that Christ has purchased for us. Malice, anger, wrath, slander. Ephesians 4 is very similar. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. Why are we supposed to speak the truth in love? Because we are one together in Christ. That's what peace is supposed to look like. He goes on, Paul goes on to say, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Remember talking about the Holy Spirit when we come to the John passage. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Be kind to one another. Not only does this this makes no sense to a Christian who's individualistic, who, who only sees me, me and Jesus, me and God. These passages don't make any sense because they're talking about communal virtues. But the other thing is to realize that we are commanded and even given the tools to fight against all of these sources of conflict. So it's worth you asking yourself and, and how you impact the community around you. Do you harbor these sorts of anti-peaceful, warring, Sentiments, and why? What is it about the, the peace of God that Christ has purchased for you and the unity that you already are 
in the church, what about that is not enough for you? That you're still trying to compete. That you're still trying to uh, outdo your brother or sister in Christ. Which is really the sort of what's underneath um, those different characteristics. Um, but finally, I want to look at, so, so peace being described as this active, powerful, strong, secure thing where God defeats his, en- his enemies and ours. He also defeats them justly. So let's talk about the justice that is assumed here finally in this passage. Um, because right in the middle of the passage we're told, their thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. And so there were thrones uh, in Jerusalem. They would be looking in this pilgrimage not just to worship, not just to sacrifice for forgiveness, but to settle disputes. To settle uh, maybe tribal disputes or, or interfamilial disputes and conflicts and battles. And that's, they're going to their sort of supreme court, if you will, in Jerusalem. And he's praising God for that. He's praising God for that. So just think about that in and of itself. Do you praise God for his judgment? For his justice? We should. It's hard for us in, the, in our culture, but we should. We should want a God who is angry at all the things that are wrong. And we should want a God who we know will judge at least finally on the final day. That he will make all things right. We should absolutely want that. But to, to focus in on how this uh, shows itself in the New Covenant church, how does this get done in the church? I mentioned already, when we think about justice and we think about who are our enemies, we want to start by the justice and the righteousness that was accomplished in Christ. We were enemies with God. He died even while we were enemies so that we may be reconciled, so that we may enjoy that peace. But there's something even deeper, uh, not, I shouldn't say deeper, there's something more going on here too. There's that judgment, and that judgment is the one that matters, not the judgment that we fear that others may have of us, not the, uh, do we wonder whether or not we are pleasing those around us. We have this unbelievable judgment that says, God welcomes you. God says to you, you are not guilty in Christ. That's crazy. But then, we have this justice and reconciliation that we are told happens in the church among us. And this is where I want to look at um, that passage from the Gospel of John. And this is the passage that... uh, gives us an amazing glimpse into the resurrected Jesus. And he says some things that maybe on first first hearing, first reading, seem confusing, bizarre. Uh, We're not quite sure what to do with them. One thing is, he says several different times, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And remember, he's a Jew. He's using it in that full sense. Shalom be with you. He's not just saying, take it easy. I think that's how we often take it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the the desire of this psalm, the desire of the temple blessing that would say, peace be among you. 
Now, this is the resurrected Jesus speaking to his disciples. Now, he says, peace be with you with all that we've already talked about with peace. But then what does he do? You guys remember what he does then? He gives them something. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, which would have been focused geographically and locally in the temple, in the Old Covenant. But what we see in the New is that the temple is going global. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That thing that you had to trek through the mountains, the dangerous mountains of Israel to get to, you're going to receive it now through me, which we could go and, and talk a lot about. He says, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that is something that I think, especially Protestants, have a really hard time understanding. What is he? How can he say that? To the apostles, these guys who just denied him and just fled him. So he's clearly not saying, you guys have really good insight into people's soul. And you guys have really good insight into, uh, you know, Scripture. So whatever you say, I'm going to go along with it. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that because you are going to be the, the foundation of the church that is going to be led by the Holy Spirit, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's how he puts it in other Gospels. That there is going to be justice and judgment and reconciliation proclaimed in the church. And so he gives us an authority in the church to say, you are in Christ and you are not. What does it mean to be in Christ? And what is it not? And to say, these people are forgiven and these people aren't. Repent and believe is what it means to be in Christ. But there's a judgment there that we should be longing for. That we should, why should we be longing for that sort of judgment? Because we're now being told by the God-given authority in the church that you are in Jerusalem. Peace be among you. You have received the just and strong peace of God. You guys see why that can be actually something that we can rejoice in? That when we come on Sunday, we're going to get to experience that again. And look around and discern the body of Christ and say, look at my brothers and sisters, I will rejoice for them too because they too have been reconciled. They too have been able to take refuge in the justice of God that was meted out on Christ in our place. We no longer have to fear the judgment that God may have on them or that God may have on us, on me. That's something that we can look forward to. We don't have to be afraid of this judgment. It really takes, I think, a shift in our mindset that we can say things like authority justice and judgment are good things. But in the hands of Jesus, they they are meant to be that. They're always meant to be 
gospel-centered. The whole point is to declare to us and to the world, this is who your God is. That was the mission of Israel. The mission of Israel was meant to say, I'm going to make you a holy people so that I can show you, so that I can show the world through you who I am. And that's what he's doing now among us. And if this is the body of Christ, then our identity now starts from that fact that we are in Christ. And if it starts from this, and we live in it more and more and more, it becomes a witness through the community of who our God is. Does that excite you? Can you, can you now actually say, all right, when someone invited me to church, I was glad and rejoiced. I'm not trying to, you know, be condemning. You know, we're not always walking in here happy-go-lucky. But to realize that something does happen here is unique because God is here. God's peace is here. God's justice is here. We can take refuge in it. And what an amazing, amazing introduction to the table that we get to come to. The place where we get to see, be reminded, and experience the reconciliation we have with God and with one another. Peace be among you. We are a people of peace, not slander, not envy, 